0: Hello and welcome again to today's podcast episode on bipolar depression. This episode is part of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, Advancing Care in Bipolar Depression. I'm Dr. Greg Mattingly, an associate clinical professor at the Washington University School of Medicine and president of the Midwest Research Group here in St. Louis, Missouri. With me today is my good friend and colleague who's going to discuss the treatment across the bipolar spectrum, Dr. Vladimir Malatek. Clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the USC School of Medicine in Greensville, South Carolina. Vlad, um, why don't we dive into this topic? We got a lot to talk about when we talk about treatment across the bipolar spectrum. And I, and I thought if it's okay with you, let's talk about those people that have more than bipolar. Let's talk about the people that have bipolar plus comorbidity. How do you do how do you do your sequence of treatment? And let's start with uh somebody has ADHD plus bipolar. How do you sequence your treatments or do you do it holistically? What do you
1: look at? You know, it is, uh, it's an excellent topic, uh, Greg, and uh, I will share a little bit, but uh, I would also like you to participate in answering that question for a very simple reason. You, you have written some of the literature. So uh, clearly you're very much acquainted with it. So uh, let's look at this dilemma about uh, treating bipolar disorder that is comorbid with uh, ADHD. I don't know if you will agree with this, but I think uh, uh, first uh, order of business in the patient, if they have bipolar disorder, and their mood is not stable, would be to stabilize their mood and establish foundational treatment for bipolar illness. Uh, it would be good at that point to reevaluate and to see what kind of residual ADHD like symptoms the patient has. And if they do have residual uh, ADHD like symptoms, I would not hesitate uh, to introduce either stimulant or non stimulant treatment, uh, having in mind uh, that uh, it is probably advisable to start with lower doses have gradual uh, titration of uh, ADHD medicines uh, and regularly check in with the patient to see number 1 are they experiencing clinical improvement and number 2 is this combination well tolerated and are we seeing any evidence of destabilization of the mood so i would say that adding ADHD medicines so long as there is good foundational mood stabilizer is not problematic Uh, Here is where I would be reluctant and probably not initiate treatment yet if the patient had prominent mixed symptomatology and if the patient had rapid cycling. Now, the part that is really intriguing, patients with bipolar illness who have significant genetic loading for ADHD are actually more likely to be rapid cyclers. So it, it would be, again, ideal that we address first uh, mood symptoms, have the patient stable, and then start uh, treating them with uh, uh, medicines for ADHD. There are a couple of things that we have to keep in mind. If we are using stimulants, in generally speaking, we are enhancing the activity of prefrontal cortex, uh, uh, most uh, uh, often uh, based on the imaging studies, increased activity of dorsal prefrontal cortex. That may translate into better executive function, better effortful, sustained attention, and uh, also important to us, better top-down regulation of emotion. But at the same time, we're also increasing norepinephrine and dopamine input into amygdala, uh, which may mean less resilience to stress and which may mean uh, greater emotional reactivity. So, uh, when I use ADHD medicines, I look at both. I look uh, uh, to see if we're having gain in terms of better attention, better executive function, less impulsivity, improved emotional regulation. But I also do evaluate sensitivity to stress, especially if there are any man- major perturbations in, in my patient's life. There is some evidence that successful treatment uh, not only is likely to diminish the risk of future episode, but in some instances, it may diminish risky behaviors uh, such as suicide attempts. So I would definitely not dismiss uh, ADHD medicines as treatment in individuals who have comorbid bipolar disorder and ADHD but uh, I would advise caution and uh, frequent monitoring and very careful monitoring of this combined treatment. Uh, what are you th- your thoughts? Again, you're an expert in the field. You have published on this topic. So what are your thoughts, Greg?
0: So, so it's a place where my, my view has evolved over the last 10 years, I'll have to say, Vlad. 10 years ago, I'd have said exactly what you said. For heaven's sake, treat bipolar first. Get people stable, only go to ADHD treatment if you absolutely need to. Several studies kind of challenge that notion, though, and make you think that maybe holistic treatment, meaning combination at the same time treatment, may be the best treatment. One of those studies was published by Michelle DeBello. We were a research site in that study, and it looked at people that had bipolar depression, children and adolescents. About 20% of those kids had ADHD, and we looked at the outcomes of the kids who stayed on their ADHD medicine as they were being treated with an atypical antipsychotic for bipolar depression. The kids who stayed on their ADHD medicine while being treated for bipolar depression had the very best outcomes. Hmm. They had better outcomes than the kids who didn't stay on ADHD medicine. They actually had better outcomes than the kids who didn't have ADHD. So that combination group actually was the best of all the outcomes in the study when we looked at the pods of the arm. The one that I think then is a little bit even more kind of uh, thought-provoking, there was a study that Bob Finling was the lead author that we were a part of, led. And this looked at adolescents that had bipolar mania. And the question there is, does it make sense to leave them on their ADHD stimulant? And I believe it was about 10% while you were treating their mania at the same time. And in that study, if the clinician felt that the ADHD medicine was helping cognitively with things like school primarily and was not the driver of of the bipolarity and the mania, the kids could continue on their stimulant while they were being treated for bipolar mania. And similarly, that group that got very careful, very cautious, but holistic treatment actually had some of the very best outcomes. So up until those two studies, I have said stop the stimulant, stabilize bipolar. But those two studies actually say, listen, be careful, be cautious, use your clinical judgment. If you think the, the stimulant's destabilizing things, get it out of there. But if you think the stimulant's helping but not part of the destabilization, then holistic treatment may make a difference. And then finally, that large study you and I have talked about before in adults, it was a large meta-analysis or a large European study, if I remember correctly, that said if you have bipolar spectrum illness and you have ADHD, treating the ADHD actually decreased suicide attempts and suicidal behavior. So I think it's a place you have to individualize treatment. I think you want to be very careful. But my, I'll have to say my treatment, is, my thoughts have evolved over the last 10 years. Well, let me ask you about, and this is something you and I deal with seeing kids, and I know you've seen kids throughout your career, and I certainly do. How about these kids that you would say, listen, they haven't declared as bipolar yet, but I think they're at risk, and they look like they're heading that direction. So maybe they have a lot of mixed symptoms. Maybe they have high genetic loading. Maybe there's just something on the back of your neck. These kids have not responded to a couple of antidepressants. They've had some antidepressant misadventures. What would you ever treat a high-risk kid and kind of treat them in the bipolar spectrum?
1: Uh, uh, Greg, it's a fascinating question. And uh, uh, there's quite a bit of work, as you know, done in this sphere. So uh, there are various formulas, so-called risk calculators. So uh, uh, family history is uh, is one of those uh, Having psychotic symptoms is definitely an an important uh, indicator. Uh, In addition to that, uh, having uh, subterrestrial hypomania uh, can be important. Uh, Very often, historically, through my clinical practice, I see issues related to diurnal dysregulation. Uh, These are kids who don't eat their meals at the same time as family members. They don't have the same uh, sleep schedule. Uh, Very often, they have decreased uh, need for sleep. Uh, uh, These are all important uh, indicators as well as... uh, uh, mixed symptomatology in response to either stimulant treatment or antidepressant treatment. So uh, what do we do with with these youngsters is a big question. Uh, There is an older study indicating that uh, if we initiate uh, lithium treatment in at-risk group uh, we may actually be benefiting these individuals as uh, they have less risk of developing uh, bipolar disorder and uh, and having bipolar diagnosis uh, down the road. Um, pharmacology in kids is very risky. Uh, stigma of having bipolar disorder uh, before we have clear evidence is also of greater concern. Uh, unless uh, things are really falling apart. I I wouldn't want the child to suffer. I wouldn't want the family conflict to increase. But there are certain things that that, uh, I would suggest early on. Uh, One of those would be psychotherapy. And this can be psychotherapy that is uh, individual focused on improving social skills. Uh, These kiddos who have predisposition towards bipolar disorder will often have social misattribution. So uh, they will uh, read hostility and uh, a nefarious intent, even in individuals with very neutral uh, behaviors. So uh, addressing some of these cognitive distortions can be very helpful. I think that psychotherapy improving coping skills is a winning strategy. I think that uh, having uh, interpersonal and social rhythms therapy is very useful. So having individuals have regular rhythms during the day, time when they get up, time when they go to bed, time when they have their meals, time, time when they work, time when they're socialized. Adhering to that, some evidence suggests it's as effective as adding another pharmacologic treatment. Psychoeducation can be very helpful. Very often, as you know, Greg, uh, they live in unstable family environments. So having family therapy uh, would be, uh, in my mind, an uh, appropriate uh, I- intervention. So, so Vlad, let me thank you for bringing up treatments
0: outside of medicine. You know, it's very easy as to experienced psychopharmacologists to forget about these other holistic areas. And I'll use in my area, in my area of St. Charles, I'm the number one referral source to Boys and Girls Club of St. Charles. For a lot of my young individuals who grew up in unstable homes, you know, the diagnosis may be a changing and evolving diagnosis being ADHD, trauma, depression, heading into bipolarity. But what I want to give is stability, structure, role models, mentorship, things in life that help them to feel good about themselves. Because maybe some of these kids haven't had a lot of people telling them, hey, listen, you're a great kid and you have a lot of gifts and we're going to help you to find your way to kind of use those gifts. So, those kinds of things are incredibly important for our kids, our adolescents, our adults across the age spectrum. when We talk about the importance of whole, kind of holistic treatment. So, thank you there. And once again, as you know, one of my favorite studies is this topic of resilience. And for all of us, positive life events build our resilience, especially true if you already have the underpinnings of an illness like bipolar disorder. So, putting positive life events, the importance of structure, the importance of sense of purpose, all of those things are very important. So we've talked about kids. Let's move into adulthood. Let's think about, Vlad, if we were thinking about the, the needs of somebody with bipolar disorder who's in their 20s, somebody who's in their 40s, now let's go to somebody in their 60s. Do those needs change over time? Or are they the same needs? Or how would you kind of think about, based on somebody's age, where their treatment needs may evolve when it comes to bipolar?
1: You know, it's a fascinating uh, question. And unfortunately, Greg, we really do not have enough evidence. Uh, Over the last uh, uh, five years, uh, there have been attempts to provide so-called staging of bipolar illness. And this staging is based not only on onset of symptoms, but also the nature of the treatment that has been used so far. So uh, what we do know, unfortunately, is that uh, bipolar disorder, if allowed to persist, is associated with progressive anatomical changes. So we do know that uh, a number of manic and in some studies, even number of depressive episodes tend to be as tends to be associated with thinning of gray matter volume. We do know that there are evolving white matter changes uh, through the course of uh, bipolar illness, and the part that uh, you know is is an area of huge interest uh, for me. Uh, we do know that uh, inflammatory changes and changes in inflammatory cytokines accompany bipolar disorder. And this is a fascinating scenario where a Canadian group actually looked at composite of uh, inflammatory indicator, looking at interleukin 1, 6, tumor necrosis factor, alpha, CRP, and fibrinogen. And what they found is that increase in peripheral inflammatory signaling actually precluded mood episode. There are also studies showing that individuals who have mood disorders and commit suicide found that individuals who died with a mood disorder but not due to suicide had no evidence of microgliosis. The individuals who died as a result of of suicide actually had microgliosis in anterior cingulate cortex. So uh, one thing that we can say with some safety is that pathophysiology and pathoanatomy of uh, bipolar disorder is evolving. Now, the part that is really intriguing, what does that mean? Uh, We do know that if they have first episode in 50s and 60s, there is a good chance that there will be vascular changes that have contributed, right? So it has very different implications. There will be more cognitive impairment. But if somebody has that earlier onset, what is the ideal combination of treatments Uh, like your approach, holistic approach? By all means, but how these approaches should differ uh, uh, if somebody has an onset at 20, should we be using different medicine at 20 and 30 versus at 40 versus at 60? I don't know that we have enough data. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. So so a few things I would
0: point out to our audience. So bipolar itself by nature, like you said, is a progressive damaging illness within the brain when left untreated, right? We have a lot of data that, you know, like other mental illness left untreated, it's bad for the brain. We also know that the nature of cycling tends to change as you get a little bit older in young adults, starting in adolescence, but through young adults, it's not uncommon to see rapid cyclers and rapid cyclers in children can be multiple times a day. In adulthood, we caught rapid cycling four or more episodes a year, and many of our young people will will cycle several times a month. That's not an uncommon thing for a young adult. Vlad, I think what you and I have seen and what the data tells us is cycles tend to lengthen, right? People get stuck. They get stuck in depressed episodes, depression with mixed features, and that's where a lot of our people later in life with bipolar disorder wind up living. So cycle length changes. The nature of the symptoms you're tending to have tend to change a little bit as the people progress through the illness. And then I would say the treatments change based on a couple of other things. One is in my young adult population, my university age population. I like medicines with long half-lives. You know, if you have bipolar disorder, the chance that you're going to remember 24-7 to never miss a dose and to try to say, take something BID, forget it, it's not going to happen. So I like medicines with a little bit of forgiveness built in when it comes to half-life. So a long half-life versus short half-life. I'll typically choose for my younger people. And then we also know that tolerability changes as you get older. You know, the tolerability, say, for lithium as you get to be older based on renal excretion and other comorbidities in your life. And then I'm always very careful early in life that I don't want to start a group of side effects and tolerability that are going to be with you the rest of your life. Mainly weight gain and metabolics. Right. So I think one of the big mistakes we make early on is we hit people with some of the heavy hitters, maybe some of the older medicines we all trained with. But next thing you know, we look around, and our people aren't fitting in their clothes anymore. So we've induced a whole other set of secondary issues you want to think about.
1: Yeah, great but, points, Greg. Now, you know, there is something, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you would respond to this one, right? So there's a famous paper by Emil Kreplin, 1920s, and he has looked at something that you have hinted. How does nature of bipolar disorder in a naturalistic setting change? This study will never be repeated. Nobody will study uh, uh, more than 900 patients uh, over an extended period of time with no medicines involved. And this is what he found. Initially, manic episodes were more frequent. Mixed symptomatology was more frequent. After age 55, uh, mania and hypomania virtually disappear. Mixed states are much more pronounced, and bipolar starts looking like intractable depression. What it that in later phases, if we see depression, our strategy should be different. That We should be using agents that have not only efficacy for hypomania and mania, uh, but have proven efficacy for bipolar depression. I'm saying that for a very obvious reason. There are only five uh, uh, medications that are indicated for treatment of uh, uh, bipolar depression. Right. So what should those be our preferences, as well as using, let's say, uh, uh, maintenance treatments that have uh, a greater efficacy for depressed episode, let's say, like Lamotrigine. In terms of how do we initiate, there is a little bit of gender difference uh, because uh, the onset of bipolar in women 80 percent of the time is going to be with depressive episodes in minutes about 50-50. Average age of onset of bipolar in women is age 18. Average age of first hypomanic manic episode is going to be 25, which brings up a question, what do we do in these interim seven years? Do we just keep on using antidepressant, which uh, seem not to be working, or do we have a conversation that although we do not have diagnostic criteria, we should think about initiating treatment? In that scenario, do we preferentially initiate treatment uh, with agents that have efficacy for bipolar depression? Because these are some of the key manifestations. At which point do we introduce maintenance treatment? Another good point. And let's use medicines that have good safety evidence that where we will not be doing additional harm, because we know that it is something that is a vicious cycle. Uh, these medicines, uh, which may induce metabolic derangements and weight gain, will actually impact on manifestation of illness, uh, because we do know that increased BMI, both based on imaging and functional studies, is associated with impairment in cognition. We know that loss of insulin receptor sensitivity is associated with cognitive impairment. So again, having these bodily changes is not only health risk in the long run, but frankly, risk in terms of cognition and manifestation of bipolar uh, illness. So I I couldn't agree more with you. Let's start with safer treatments first, and let's start with treatments that will match up with clinical manifestations early on. yeah. And Vlad, if I was going to
0: list, you know, medicines and classes of medicines to think about, when we think about those treatment strategies, if this was my son, my daughter, or relative, or you call me with your a curbside about a family member, you know, that would lead me as a clinician to probably start, for example, in the mood stabilizer class, I'd probably favor lamotrigine over various forms of valproate. One has a lot lower weight gain burden than the other. Same when we come to the atypicals for depression. We have five that are approved for bipolar depression. Two of those have fairly significant weight gain. Three of those are actually pretty clean metabolically. And one probably actually has causes you to maybe lose a little weight or certainly stay weight neutral. Mm -hmm. So if I was looking at those, those two that tend to cause weight gain, I'm gonna save those as kind of in the back of my pocket. If I have to go there, I'll go there. But if I can use the other three, the three newer ones that are approved for bipolar depression. That's where I'm going to start because I'm trying not to induce a metabolic burden in my patients.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when it comes to younger women, right, uh, you've mentioned valprate, uh, not only uh, risk of uh, polycystic ovaries, uh, uh, but also the the interference and, and, and uh, 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 risk uh, if they become inadvertently pregnant, right? There's teratogenicity uh, with certain agents. So it might be a good idea to avoid those uh, early on if we can help it.
0: Okay. Let's think about adjunctive treatment. It's our last topic for this session. How do you think about combining, you know, whether it's a mood stabilizer plus an atypical, where do we have data that we know it works? Where do we not have data? When would you use combination treatment versus monotherapy in those, in those strategies?
1: Right. So we, we do have uh, several examples where uh, there are combination treatments. So, uh, these are pretty old data, but there is uh, evidence of uh, uh, olanzapine uh, being combined with lithium valproate and being uh, helpful. Uh, with uh, manic symptoms and uh, uh, depressed uh, depressed symptoms and mixed symptomatology. So uh, we do have evidence of that. There are data of uh, loracidone uh, being uh, combined with uh, lithium and and valproate. More recently, we have data of uh, a combination of lumatepron. Uh, with uh, lithium and and valpray. These are just some that uh, come to mind uh, off the top of my head where it's it's important in my mind, number one, to have clear evidence of benefit of adding a treatment, but in addition to that, to have good safety information. Uh, Because uh, while we may have... Uh, something in the plus column in in terms of symptom control, we want to make sure we're not adding a whole lot in the minus column in in terms of combining uh, adverse reactions. Yeah, and Vlad, that's a really important question. I remember an
0: old VA data set where they looked at the weight gain of a mood stabilizer, be it lithium or valproate, and we know that valproate had more weight gain than lithium in that study. But then they looked at the group that was on a medicine, a mood stabilizer, plus an atypical. And the weight gain of one plus one wasn't two, it was one plus one multiplied to an exponential order. When you looked at the additive weight gain of having two medicines that both make you hungry. So I think there we think about safety. I think we talk about benefit. We do have a handful of the atypicals that have data on top of mood stabilizers. Lorazidone, lumateperone would be two of the examples where we have data where they've been shown to work on top of a mood stabilizer. Um, I think we think about combinations that cause increased additive side effects. So, we're trying not to add another weight gain atypical on top of a weight gain base when it comes to a mood stabilizer. And then, once again, you individualize your treatment in a holistic fashion. Vlad, we're out of time once again. Uh, let me thank you, as always, for joining me as faculty for this uh, fantastic podcast series. For anyone that's found this informative for your clinical practice, please tune in to the next session that we're going to have. Look at the show notes. And join us again as we dive into the world of pharmacology and treatments in bipolar. Thank you to everyone.